Hey everybody, it is Travis Michael Fleming here, and I know it's been a while since you've heard an episode from us, and I wanted to give you just a quick update as well as enlist your help. There are some pretty amazing things coming down the pike that we wanted to draw your attention to, as well as some obstacles that have come up along the way. I have been busy traveling, teaching, going to churches, being at conferences. It's been a wonderful time. In fact, I had the wonderful opportunity to be a participant at the To Change the World Symposium at the University of Virginia at the Institute for the Advanced Studies of Culture. I was invited along with a little over 30 other intellectuals to discuss how does cultural regeneration happen. It was an honor to be there, to meet so many ministry leaders, business leaders, thinkers, academics. I mean, there were so many different people that were there from so many different backgrounds. And it was really an honor to engage in the discussions on to change the world. Now, that the title of the symposium actually came about because of James Davison Hunter. Now, James Davison Hunter had written a book in 2010 that caused a lot of conversation. The book was simply entitled, To Change the World, and How Does Culture Actually Change? And he discusses a lot about cultural change in the book. I'm not going to spoil the thesis for you. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to do so. And I know that there are some out there right now who are saying, I don't even know who James Davison Hunter is. What are you even talking about? Well, James Davison Hunter is the E.F. Hutton of culture. I don't know if you were around in the 1980s, but there were these commercials about the E.F. Hutton stock brokerage firm. And the commercials kind of went like this. When E.F. Hutton speaks, everyone listens. And you would have this, this group of people in a restaurant or a church or on an airplane or a park, wherever there would be a group of people. And when someone would say, you know, my broker E.F. Hutton says, and then everyone would stop, lean in and strain to hear what was being said. When James Davison Hunter talks about culture, people all around strain to listen, especially of those in leadership in DC, New York, and other cultural centers. He's the person who termed culture war. He actually created that term in 1991, wrote a book by the same name, and was the first person to really draw attention to this phenomenon of culture wars, which we see and hear all the time on the news. He's also one of the first people to draw attention to the possibility of school shootings, and he, he did that in the mid-1990s. So he's a bit of a cultural prophet on what's coming down the line. And when he writes something, people listen. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone always agrees, but he is a serious academic, he is a Christian, and when he discusses or mentions anything about culture, people want to hear what he has to say. So we were invited together to discuss this very important topic on how does cultural regeneration happen? I mean, what needs to occur? Where does it happen? These are some of the questions that we talked about. And it was really an awesome time. And I, I learned a ton. Hopefully, I didn't make a fool of myself in the conversations that were there. But it really was an awesome time of having conversations. And it's, it's good to be back. I have not only been at that, but teaching at churches and engaging with people all over the place, trying to get the words of Apollos watered out there. And as we've gone along, I mean, not only have I been pretty busy, there's a great deal of things that are happening. Some things that we are planning that we are so excited to bring to your attention. So things like the watering weekends, where we go into churches and help you and your church really fulfill the mission of God where they are at this cultural moment, because we do want to equip you and your missionary encounter with Western culture. 
We are also in the planning stages of creating the Apollos Academy. This is where people can come from all over the place, jump online, and be equipped in how to deal and interact as a Christ follower in the midst of the culture in which we find ourselves. But we need the funding to be able to make this happen, which is where we, where you come in. We want you to be praying for us because this is a spiritual endeavor. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain who build it, as the scripture says. We need, we need God to build this, but he uses his people in order to do so. We noticed that we had a dip in our giving this summer, and we brought that to your attention, and it's kind of continued down. Now, it's been a slight rebound, but we need to be able to shore that up, to be able to do what God has called us to do. And again, we're not doing this by ourselves. We are doing this together. This is how this is accomplished. Anyway, I wanted to let you know all of that before we get into our conversation with Mark Knoll on C.S. Lewis, which is a pretty important conversation, and to let you know that until we make up that funding difference, we're going to go back to one episode a week. And we need to do so because we have so many other projects that we want to do, and we need the opportunity to really plan that. But I want to thank you for your faithfulness. I want to thank you for listening to the show. And I just want to really encourage you so that you might be able to fulfill the mission of God where you are. I don't know what your situation is, but I do know that you're listening to this show because you care about Jesus. You care about people following Jesus. You care about people and their eternal state. You want to, to follow God. You want to obey his word. I want to be able to help equip you in that. Together, we can fulfill the mission that God has for us. Us as equippers, you out there doing it where you are because you are a light in your community. You're a light in your neighborhood. You're a light in your workplace. So keep it up. But if you are not one of our watering partners yet, simply go online to our Apollos Watered website, click the support us button, and then select the amount that works for you. Whether it's a one-time gift or becoming one of our monthly watering partners, we have so much we want to do and we want you to be a part of it. But without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Mark Knoll as we talk about C.S. Lewis. Happy listening. Capacity to watch the news, get the news on your, your internet feed, and think, oh, the world, the world, the world. It's not irrelevant, but almost none of us, almost all of the time, can do very little to affect the world. But all of us, almost all the time, can do those things that affect the immediate environment where we, where we live. podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming and I am your host and today on our show we're having another one of our Deep Conversation. Have you ever encountered an artist that captures your imagination? It could be a sculpture. It could be a painting. It could be a song or perhaps a song lyric. Maybe it's a writer or a poet. There are some artists that you encounter that capture your imagination in ways that you can't quite explain. I mean, it's like your imagination is awakened, like it's roused from a sleep 
and you start to see things differently. For me, that's C.S. Lewis. I'm a huge fan of C.S. Lewis. And I remember the first time that I ever heard about him, I was in college. And I remember my friends kept talking about C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis. They just kept saying his name over and over again. So I thought, well, I don't want to be left out. I want to read this guy. So I ended up reading Mere Christianity. And I thought it was a good book, but I didn't quite get everything in it. And I kind of played along because all my friends did. And then I read Till We Have Faces. I had no idea what he was talking about. And then I picked up the Chronicles of Narnia. Then suddenly I started to grasp it a bit more. I decided to read his sci-fi trilogy, and I was lost. It made me just want to step away from Lewis. I didn't get it. There was something that I was missing that all my friends got, but I didn't. So I resigned myself to just letting Lewis go. Just drift away from the shore, go downstream to someone else who would appreciate him more. However, fast forward about seven years, and for whatever reason, I decided to pick up Lewis again. This time, I found that my mind was like dry logs, ready to be set on fire by Lewis's flame. And that's exactly what occurred. I was awakened in ways that I can't even begin to communicate to you. There's something about Lewis, something deep in the spirit that is awakened within him that awakens something within other people. Now, for those who are sticklers for theology, and I consider myself as such and part of that tribe, Lewis really bothered me because he didn't fit my theological categories. He seemed to transcend them. And even though he violated them, and not only my tribe, but several other tribes as well, people still advocated him being read. And there was something to that that made me stop and go, what is it about him? Is it from the Spirit of God? Is it simply that he thought differently, or was his mind awake and his imagination captured ours? And what does that have to do with the missionary encounter that we advocate for here at Apollos Watered? Well, plenty. You know, at Apollos Watered, part of the missionary encounter is advocating for a mere Christianity. And there is no better advocate for that than C.S. Lewis. Lewis transcends culture, space, and tribe. And he speaks to each one of us where we are. And he awakens our mind to the reality of who God is in very profound and yet simple ways. And that's why I've invited Mark Knoll back to the show. Mark is a world-class historian. Indeed, considered sometimes America's best Christian or church historian. And he's written a book that's coming out very soon on C.S. Lewis and his reception in America. And because we are in the West, I wanted to see Lewis again so that we might be able to appreciate more of what God did through him and what he wants to do through him and through us reading him now. So, so I would encourage you to listen into this conversation as we talk about C.S. Lewis's reception in America, but also so that we might be able to engage with Lewis because in doing so, we are able to share the faith more effectively and go deeper with Jesus spiritually. So without further ado, Here's my conversation with historian Mark Knoll. Happy listening. 
Mark Knoll, welcome back to Apollo's Water. Thank you. Thank you, Travis. Nice to be here again. I love having you on because you, I mean, you're, you're a historian and I love history. So I'm excited about our conversation today. But if you remember, we have our fast five. Are you ready for the fast five? Well, ready or not, here we go. Okay, here we go. Easy one. Your favorite restaurant is where and why? I like uh, Simply Thai just down the street. It's, it's nice Thai food and it's always very quiet. Is that where you had some of your conversations? You referred to having conversation with Jerry Root. You said having lunch together. Was that at the Thai place? I, th I think we might have gone to uh, the, the small Chinese restaurant close by that unfortunately is closed now. So that that was that's a that's a bummer. Um, I hate it when restaurants that I enjoy close. Oh, all right, but it happens. Number two, what is your favorite non-academic hobby? Well, I'm sure it's walking. Uh, we, we, my wife and I have walked for years and years together. And now as an old guy, that's about all I can do of activity. But <laughs> it's uh, refreshing. And even on cold and windy days, it's, it's nice to get out. Hmm. All right. Number three, then. How about this? Where is the place you love to travel to the most and why? Uh, so love to is, is a kind of conceptual matter. We we. Uh, one time we're in New Zealand and I thought if this wasn't a billion miles away, I would really like to go back and look at more. We are mostly in the South Island. I would like, mm. I think, to go back and, and travel in the North as well in the South again. But we probably won't because it is too far away. What year did you go there? 2001. So it was just this the summer before 9-11. Uh, and actually it was it was remarkable because you could walk on an airplane and there was you know, just walked on, no checks, no, nobody looking at you. Just that, that was, that was the era that's passed. Yeah. It, yeah. Were, were you actually in New Zealand when 9-11 happened? No, no, we, we were there the summer beforehand. Oh, the summer beforehand. I, I remember talking with Jill Briscoe about that. She was actually in the air when that happened and they got down at a, at a small little airport in Canada. And she and she talked about might have been in Newfoundland and she talked about washing her clothes in the bathroom because they couldn't leave. They were like stuck there. So it was very interesting hearing her stories. And of course, she's just this amazing storyteller anyway. So anyway. All right. Number four, name one historical figure outside of the Bible that you would love to interview and why. Well, I have been uh, interested for years in the, the music and life of J.S. Bach. Uh, I, he was a very busy guy. I don't think he'd have a whole lot of time for uh, taking in uh, questions and answers, but he certainly would be one. Are you a musician? No, no, I, I'm an amateur singing the choir and, and really enjoy uh, listening to music and having real musicians around. But no, I'm not a musician. I was just curious. I mean, Bach is for the serious. I, I've sung some of Bach's stuff like his B minor mass. That's not easy stuff. Serious, right? <laughs> he was... He was a serious and very underappreciated musician. Right. Uh, particularly, I think, in church circles. He was, he was a serious Lutheran, and uh, his cantatas are really tr uh, very profound and inspiring commentaries on the text for the day. Yes, very much so. All right, here we go. This is number five. Because you are a historian, you've written so many different works over the years. But let's say that someone writes your biography. What would you hope it to be titled? And why? Ooh, that's that's that is 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 a good one. Um, well, maybe something like uh, sitting in the library can be fun. 
did you go into the library a lot as a kid? I mean, did, did your no, interest in history. Yeah, actually, I, I remember uh, going even before I could read, and we would sit around and hear somebody read a read a story and be fascinated by it. And and I think I started checking books out at age six or seven, and have been doing it ever since. Wow. What, I mean, are you using what libraries do you go to? Are you just getting it online? Right now, it's, it's mostly the the Wheaton. Uh, public library, though we're close enough to Wheaton College. I do get over to, to that. And I, I'm grateful as a emeritus professor at Wheaton that I can check out books from the Wheaton College Library, which I do from time to time. What's the best library you've ever experienced? That's not on the question. I mean, I just want to know, having been in so many different libraries around the world, I mean, you were at Notre Dame. What's the best library uh, Notre, that you've Notre ever Dame seen? It does have a good library. I, I was privileged to spend a year at the Library of Congress, uh, let's see, 2000 and the 2005 and six or 2004 and uh, 2004 and five. And that was, that was phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, I was researching uh, in part what uh, Christians outside of the United States said about the American civil war. So I would find a book and I, I could oh. sort of read the, read the main European languages. I'd find a book in German or in French written in 1863 I'd request it, and the next morning it would be there at my my carol. Uh, I think there were one or two that I asked for that they didn't have, but it, it's remarkable, comprehensive uh, resources for studying anything in American history, anything as American history connecting to the world. Wow! So That's... I'm a big fan of the Library of Congress. Huh? I I didn't know that you could do that. I mean, what I. Well, there's other questions I have about that. Like, you don't just get a library card from the Library oh, yeah. of Congress. Oh, <laughs> right. well, you can't. Actually, the, the, the public is welcome. But this is a, this, they, there's funding to bring in scholars to the Library of Congress. I was privileged to be one of those for the, for the year. That's awesome. All right. Well, let's let's speaking of scholarship and, and talking about literature and talking about some historical people. And we actually referenced this at a time. You've written a book that's not yet been released on... C.S. Lewis in America. Right. And, and we all, anyone who's familiar with Lewis, and I've read this and feel free to correct me, but he's one of the few Christian authors that is read by almost every single branch of Christianity. Exactly. And considering just how phenomenal he was, I mean, we look at him now and there's a lot of great admiration for him, but you write about how really he was received initially in America. And you break that down by... Catholics and then kind of the mainstream media and then evangelicals are, they're kind of a little bit late to the game with him, a little bit more apprehensive, but what, what sparked your interest in writing about Lewis in America? Well, the, the, the uh, one of the privileges of teaching at Wheaton college for many years was that I enjoyed uh, lunchtime conversations with Lyle Dorsett first, and then Chris Mitchell, who were directors of the Wade center. The Wade center at Wheaton is a collection of, of works of Lewis, about Lewis, and then six people who were very important in his life. So let's see if I can get the other six. J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Dorothy Sayers, uh, G.K. Chesterton, George MacDonald, I'm missing one more, Owen Barfield, mm. uh, and uh, an English professor whom I was privileged to uh, take classes with way back in the dawn of time, uh, Clyde Kilby actually corresponded with uh, Lewis and then uh, visited him. And then after Lewis died, visited Lewis's brother and collected first manuscripts and then, and then uh, uh, first editions and, and, and translations. 
And then uh, one of the founders of the Service Master Company, Marion Wade, and others donated funds that to establish at Wheaton a center studying uh, these seven authors. And uh, I'm, I'm not a C.S. Lewis expert, but I certainly read some and admired a great, a great deal. So it was privileged to, to, to work, to enjoy these conversations. Then after I left Wheaton for uh, Notre Dame, Chris Mitchell, who was then the, the uh, director of the, the Wade Center, said, we're going we're gonna to have a conference in uh, 2013 just to commemorate the 50th 50th anniversary of C.S. Lewis's death. And of course, people know he died the same day that J.F. Kennedy was, was, was shot. Elvis Huxley died. So November 22nd, 1963. So this conference is going to be in 2013. Would I like to take part? And I thought, well, I, I've been always uh, a fan of Lewis, a greatly appreciative, but also just a little bit nervous about making Lewis a kind of icon pulled out of time. So I guess I'm a historian. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think, what, what, what went into making uh, Lewis, a, a, a popular figure. What what was the story behind how he became so uh, well read, so influential, so uh, so so such a such a common authority and and influence in, in America at the time at Notre Dame, uh, the university uh, graciously was hired my wife Maggie as a, a research assistant for me for a few hours every week. And she was able to use the, the excellent resources of the uh, Notre Dame Library as well as online. And it wasn't quite so much online stuff available then as it is now to gather a, a pretty complete um, uh, record of the early American awareness of C.S. Lewis. Now, early, I, I'm defining as 1935 to 1947. And the reasons, a couple reasons for that. Lewis's first published work, uh, The Pilgrim's Regress, came out in England in 1935, and it was published in the United States also by Sheedon Ward. The first review of a Lewis book in America appeared in the New York Times in December 1935. It was was short, but a positive Hmm. review of The Pilgrim's Regress. The end point I, I took as the appearance of Lewis on the cover of Time magazine, which in that day was. far and away, the most uh, uh, widely spread kind of mid-level purveyor of communication about the U.S. and the world. So he appeared on the cover of Time magazine in September of 1947. So we have a kind of 10 or 12-year period with World War II right in the middle. And significantly before the the stupendous popularity of the Narnia Tales, first Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, either 1950 or 1951, and before the three radio talks that were published separately were pulled together to become mere Christianity. That was 1952, mm. I believe. So you have a, an early part of Lewis's career where he's known in America, has, has a certain amount of popularity, but it's before the, the really great, great worldwide popularity that comes from uh, mere Christianity and, and, and the Narnia tales, although C.S. Lewis experts now are referring to that as the ransom trilogy. So, sorry, no, no, getting mixed up already. Yeah, just forget that. We'll come back to the yeah, yeah. trilogy, the, the the ransom. Too many Lewis books again. So it's before <laughs> *Mere Christianity*, before the *Narnia Tales*, and, and uh, the, the initial question was, well, just just who's who's reading these things? And I, I guess I'd known 
and and partly from the, the there's three excellent books that have been published earlier about the reception of C.S. Lewis, including reception in America. One by Alan Snyder, one by uh, uh, Stephanie Derrick, one by George Marsden, but but and they were good, but they they did not focus on this early period exactly. So I knew that there had been early Catholic awareness. I knew that the, the evangelical Protestants were a little bit late. I, I, I'm not sure I knew that how many interesting people had actually uh, that are known for other things had actually taken the opportunity to review Lewis. So Maggie was able to pull together this this. Uh, Pretty comprehensive catalog uh, into the hundreds of, of reviews in that 12-year period. So I did a paper for the for the conference that Chris Mitchell uh, pulled together. Sadly, Chris uh, died of a heart attack not not too long uh, thereafter. And this there, there was then uh, there was supposed to be a book from the conference, but then it became a book in honor of, of uh, Chris. And I was able to uh, revise the paper I'd given for that conference. But it's but but it, it, the the paper could only get at just a little bit of it, and meanwhile Maggie had continued to do some research. I I found some more things. So the Wade Center, because of the generosity of the Hanson family, has an annual lecture by someone connected to Wheaton College. Usually, it's an active professor. Uh, President Phil Riken has done a series of these lectures on on, on Tolkien, a really nice series. But as an emeritus professor at Wheaton, they said, well, would you like to ex- sort of expand what you, what you did and talk about in detail how Americans responded to C.S. Lewis in this period before mere Christianity and the, the, the Narnia tale? So it, it's a, it looked like a really fun, fun assignment. The Hanson lectures are set up so that uh, a, a, a Wheaton-connected person gives a, a, a lecture and then another Wheaton-connected person comments. So I had three expert commenters. Karen Johnson, a uh, historian at the, the college, Kirk Farney, who is actually the, the college vice president in charge of, of promotion, but also a, a, a history PhD, and then Amy Black from the uh, political science department, who, who does a lot of work on evangelicals in the contemporary world. They, they did commentary after the three lectures I gave, first on Catholic reception of C.S. Lewis, then on kind of... Uh, uh, academic and, and, and general, and then on, on Protestant. So that's the genius behind it, the, 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 the uh, genesis behind it. Uh, uh, again, I, I came away not as a real strong C.S. Lewis expert, but with great more admiration for his works. 17 different Lewis works available in America between 1935 and 1947. I, I read, either read or looked at all of them, and, and uh, I was a C.S. Lewis fan and I'm even more of a C.S. Lewis fan because he was a very smart guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how he, uh, how he could keep so many uh, things going in his head, but uh, he, he was a very smart guy. But then as a historian, the, my main question was, what, what does this, what do the many, many reviews and reactions to C.S. Lewis tell us about these, these groups? Why would, would Catholics be interested in C.S. Lewis? What does the uh, academic response to C.S. Lewis and then the general response? Why, why are so many of Lewis's books being re- reviewed and reviewed positively in the New York Times? At the, at, in those years, the New York Herald Tribune and the Times both had major weekly book review sections. Times still has theirs. It might be the only one left in the country for, for a daily newspaper. Why were the literary journals like the Saturday Review of Literature reviewing uh, Lewis? 
And then in the Protestant world, what did what we consider today mainstream Protestants think about C.S. Lewis? And what did fundamentalist evangelicals, and that was the era when, when the neo-evangelicals, yeah. evangelicals were coming out of it, what, what did they think about it? And it, it turned out to be just, just a lot of fun to, to look at Lewis's reception as a kind of window into what was the general situation in these three venues, so Catholic, General America, and, and Protestant America. And, and uh, just it was, it was more fun than I thought it would be. The lectures were given in kind of the COVID era, so we, we had to move to an auditorium where people would sit at a distance and wear their masks when, when they came in. Uh, but, but I got great questions from the audience uh, for those uh, lectures. And, it's just been a, a, a lot of fun working with the Wade Center people, the current directors, uh, David and Crystal Downing, and, and the associate, Marjorie Mead, who uh, takes special responsibility for the Hanson Lectures. And, and so the book, I think, is due out sometime pretty soon, maybe in October or early November, the Mayor of RC Press. What were the surprising things that you discovered early on? I mean, you, like you said before, you talked about Roman Catholics, you talked about kind of the mainstream world and then Protestants. As you went through that, what was the, the biggest surprise that you found? It probably was not just that the Catholics were the earliest group to have a, a, a substantial interest in Lewis, but that their interest uh, took place at a depth and with a consideration of literature, theology, culture that really surprised me. Uh, the, the high point of the, my study, and actually it's, it's, it's reflected in the book, was discovering a two-part article that a man named Charles Brady published in 1944, May and June of 1944, in the, in the Jesuits' weekly magazine called America. Brady was an English professor at Canisius College in uh, Buffalo, New York, college uh, founded and to this day operated by the Jesuits. His article, two-part article, uh, ex uh, in effect, put together all of the C.S. Lewis books that had been published up to that time. Nobody in America did that in the period that I was studying, except for Charles Brady. By the time we get to 1947, there's a very important Protestant interpreter of C.S. Lewis, Chad Walsh, an English professor at Beloit College, who had begun to write pretty comprehensively on Lewis and, and would eventually publish the first book on C.S. Lewis in America called C.S. Lewis, Apostle to the Skeptics. I think it's 1948 or 1949. But even Chad Walsh, who was a really good scholar, and, and became personally acquainted with, with Lewis, never put together the screw tape letters and prefaced the Paradise Flaw. So you have screw tape letters, phenomenally popular with the general public, prefaced to Paradise Lost, a pretty academic book, read mostly by those who were experts in uh, John Milton and his work. Brady put together those two worlds and then some of the Christian exposition that had begun to come out in the uh, radio talks. And uh, I was blown away. In fact, uh, we got permission from the 
contemporary editors of America magazine to, to run those two uh, essays as an appendix in, in the book. So people were able to see, people were able to read what, what, what were the first, substan- first comprehensive American appreciations of C.S. Lewis. And uh, interestingly enough, Brady sent these articles to Lewis himself, and he wrote back. Lewis did not, uh, I don't know if he liked Americans, but he, he didn't really write too often to too many Americans at that stage. Later on, he did, he did, he did mm-hmm. a lot. And he said, you're the first person who has worked up my writing as a whole and, and comprehensively. So uh, that, first of all, that's really interesting. So the first comprehensive, but what, what, what did he say? What did Brady say? Well, he said, uh, there's, no, there's been no more important advocate for Christianity in the public sphere like G.K. Chesterton until C.S. Lewis came along. There's been nobody who understands the uh, history of English literature and how dependent that is upon the Christian faith. There, there's nobody who can explain with uh, literary and creativity the, uh, the main teachings he didn't put it that way. The main, the main elements, the main uh, threads of, of the Christian faith. And really quite interesting, we're going to get into the weeds here pretty soon. Um, there had been a little bit of pushback in some Catholic periodicals to other Catholics who are writing appreciatively about Lewis. So by 1944, there were probably uh, as many as uh, 10 or 12 American authors who had been reviewing the books of C.S. Lewis. Overwhelmingly positive. But there were a few who said, well, Lewis, you know, just doesn't have a strong view of the church. And we Catholics think that that's very important. Uh, there, were, there were those who were associated with the uh, Catholic University of America who, 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 who quoted canon law and said, works by non-Catholics need to be officially approved if they're going to be recommended to Catholics. And the people who were concerned about canon law said, well, we have these Catholic reviewers of C.S. Lewis, and, and they, just, they just blab on about how wonderful he is and don't pause to think about the canon law. Well, Brady, in 1944, has about two sentences on these Catholics who are nervous about C.S. Lewis. And he says, what are these people thinking? I'm paraphrasing. What are these people thinking? They, they are uh, picking over things that are just, just in the grand scope of things, not very important. And then, then he went on with his, with his appreciation. Let me read. I, I, I can pull out, just read just a little bit. I think I've got it here. Uh, some of the things that Brady said. Um, works like the C.S. Lewis have made the screw tapes letters have made Lewis the most phenomenally popular household book, the screw tape letters of applied religion in the 20th century. But so, so people knew the screw tape letters. I probably should go back and fill in that, that until the screw tape letters are come, bring out in the United States in February of 1943, Lewis is known by academics and, and really nobody else. Screw tape letters makes him popular. Lewis was the only true popular champion of orthodoxy in book, pamphlet, and radio address since the passing of G.K. Chesterton. The pages of Lewis's writing constitute a melodious sounding board, a whispering gallery 
of what is great in world literature. And then Brady, Brady was a learned guy. He just rattled off all the sources that Lewis put to use in his work. Yeah. So Virgil, R.H. Benson, Olaf Stapleton. Now, who's Olaf Stapleton? Ider <laughs> <laughs> Haggard. Ronald Knox, Tolkien, William Morris, Jonathan Swift, John Henry Newman, Chaucer, Dante, and many others, including especially Milton. So here was a learned Catholic, appreciative of a learned Church of England person because of the combination of deeply rooted Christian faith and extraordinary facility with the Western literary canon. Okay, it's 1944. Shift to the evangelical world that's kind of emerging out of fundamentalism. We think today, well, the Wade Center is a Wheaton College. Westmont Evangelical College has, has a C.S. Lewis thing. Uh, uh, Taylor University, I think, I, I think maybe even there's a competition of who has the real wardrobe. There's several <laughs> wardrobes which people get it, get it into to Narnia. So we think the evangelicals are just the ones way out in front for, for C.S. Lewis. 1944, 1945, we have the first evangelical published responses to C.S. Lewis. Moody Monthly and the, the, uh, the, Journal of the National Association of Evangelicals began to have little notices of, of Lewis. And there's three or four of these, but they're only like a paragraph or two. C.S. Lewis is a lively, important Christian thinker who we're really glad to see coming from Oxford University. But, and then there'll be a longer paragraph, we're worried about his emphasis on the sacraments. We're worried about his, his attitude toward the Bible. We're worried about this. The Christian Herald, which is a very widely uh, distributed magazine, is more appreciative, but also very, very short. So we, uh, one of these broadcast talks, it would say like two sentences, a fine Christian exposition by a, an Oxford literary scholar. And then uh, it was, I think, uh, a review of Herolandra, the first of Lewis's space trilogy. And here I get to say now. C.S. Lewis experts really are calling it the Ransom Trilogy. <laughs> it's an appreciative review of this science fiction work where uh, a, a traveler Ransom from Earth, in effect, is back to an Eden. He's on Venus. And there's a, there's a conflict to see if Eve can be kept from giving way to the, to, to the devil. Uh, it, it's all science fiction. And in the Christian Herald, 1944, the, the second paragraph says, well, we know this is a, a really interesting work, but it's too deep for me. <laughs> we need to have... So, and more positively, his magazine of University Christian Fellowship, 1944-1945, is edited by Kenneth Taylor, who will eventually be the translator paraphrases of the Bible, hugely popular living Bible in the 1950s, he begins to have Lewis in his magazine. He actually has an excerpt from Lewis's books 
and then he has some 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 uh, positive articles. But they're they're compared to Charles Brady and a kind of systematic treatment, mostly positive, few reservations, a few people with more serious res- reservations amongst the Catholics. It's really night and day. So. You ask a simple question. I've droned on in good historians' fashion. <laughs> but it, the, it is it is the fascinating. Depth the, the depth of the Catholic versus just the initial tentative awareness of the evangelical was sharper than I thought I, I would find. What made Catholics so interested in him before Protestants? There were a number of things. Uh, uh, one, one was the um, the, the, the uh, emphasis of thought on what would eventually Lewis would call the Tao or the universal instinctive belief and objective right and wrong. So what what people believe objectively is right and wrong differs from place to place. What's universal is this the sense that there is a, a right and wrong. Hmm. Uh, I'm forgetting which which of the broadcast talks begins with that, but that's the way that the mere Christianity when these things are pulled, pulled together would work. And Lewis had had uh, in one of his early academic works a dialogue with a, a fellow uh, English literature professor E. M. Tilliard. Um, Lewis had emphasized that the really important thing about a poem or a work of literature is the world being described by the author. Whereas Tilliard said, no, what's really important is how the work reflects the personality of of the author. Interestingly enough, one of the very early um, Catholic reviews of that work was by Thomas Merton, who would become very well known as a kind of Catholic monk, a Catholic guru, but but he reviewed the work in the New York Times and said, well, no, Lewis is, is right. What the, the, the personality of authors is, is clearly important, but what what's, uh, works of literature do most is to tell us about the world that's outside ourselves. So Catholics, as, as part of the very strong Thomistic heritage that was, was important in their uh, intellectual formation, believed in natural law, believe that all people had access at some level to some awareness about the way in which God had structured the universe. And Lewis has not used Catholic technical language, but Catholics of all sorts recognized that he was beginning his presentation of the Christian faith by appealing to what all people everywhere feel about morality, about an ethical life. Now, what I did not anticipate getting into this project is how the most serious evangelical response would be responding to that art, that way of Lewis presenting things that the Catholics like. So the mm-hmm. most serious response from what we would call the evangelical world came from the theologically conservative Presbyterians at Westminster Theological Seminary often in their journal, the Westminster Quarterly, Westminster Theological Quarterly. There's really some very interesting early evangelical articles. 
One is by Paul Willey, who's a wonderful gentleman, their church historian. Another was by young Edmund Clowney, who eventually became later the president of Westminster Seminary. These writers, they're, they're, you can tell they love reading C.S. Lewis. He's, he's vital. He's vibrant. Um, Paul Woolley, who was something of a, of a European-trained gentleman, said fundamentalists should be reading C.S. Lewis because he, he points out that having a glass of wine is not the most important thing in the world. <laughs> but, but after they kind of enthused about Lewis, they say, you know, there's just some real problems with his theology. And the, th- the real problem is he thinks that everybody has a kind of natural ability to have a certain awareness of God in the world. And again, you don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but if you know anything at all about conservative Presbyterian theology coming out of Westminster Seminary, you know the great influence of Cornelius Van Til, presuppositionalism, with the strong argument that the world is divided between those who accept the Bible and its truth and those who do not. And those who do not have no real valid awareness of God until they're brought to the awareness of what is in the, in the scriptures. So the net, what, what Catholics liked in Lewis about what could be called his preference for natural law, this most serious group of evangelicals, who were the ones who were leading serious evangelical engagement with Lewis, found disturbing. So Catholics mm-hmm. like that. And then a person like Brady, who taught at uh, the Jesuits Canisius College, there's another uh, professor at Marquette, man by the name of Ham, who did a very extended article on, on uh, uh, Paralandra uh, and relating it to Lewis's Milton scholarship, Jesuits Marquette. The, some of these, all of the Catholic people who wrote about Lewis had kept, come out of a tradition that had maintained real intellectual depth. Now, it wasn't popular, tied to Aquinas, tied to natural law, tied to Catholic doctrines about the Pope, meant that they, they really that this background was running parallel to the mainstream of American intellectual development, but it was solid and, and strong. So it wasn't, it wasn't too surprising that when Charles Brady took up C.S. Lewis, he was really impressed but Lewis knew Milton thoroughly. Milton knew Edmund Spencer thoroughly. Milton knew Virgil, Cicero, Augustine. That Lewis was, was conversant with the main figures of the, the Western literary and intellectual canon, which were important also in the establishment of Catholic higher education in the United States. So you had Three things for the for the Catholics: the, just the literary verve and, and just Lewis creativity. So, so the G.K. Chesterton of his era, but then there was the the doctrine. Lewis had this notion of natural law that they could latch onto, and then also the, the mastery of learning that was important in, in its own way, and, and places like. Uh, Canisius and Marquette were hanging on to um, a, a, a curriculum, a lot of influence from Thomas Aquinas, 
a lot of uh, stress on Latin and Greek still, while American higher education was beginning to move past those things pretty rapidly. So there, there were some reasons, and uh, maybe maybe a fourth reason. There were elements in American Catholicism in the 30s and 40s who thought the church was too insular. Mm. The church was, was, was not aware of the good things happening in the wider Christian world. And although it would take up, it'd take a long time till we get to the Second Vatican Council, the way in which uh, lay people, Christians, not Catholics, could contribute to Catholicism, you could see a beginning with at least some Catholic reviewers of Lewis saying, here's a non-Catholic, here's a lay person saying things that all Catholics can take advantage of. And that, that actually becomes a much more prominent thing than Catholicism, but not for 20 or 30 years. Hmm. Lewis crosses categories. I think that's why he makes so many people uncomfortable. I remember listening to John Piper at his pastor's conference give one of his biographies. And he starts off talking about Lewis. I mean, the whole thing is about Lewis. And he spends 15 minutes on saying why Lewis is bad. That's how he starts off. He said he never could have been an elder in my church. He, you know, he did this, he did that, he did this. And then he stops about 15 minutes in. And I'm feeling really bad at this moment in time because I'm wondering if I'm getting a, a rebuke because I love Lewis. He said, now, now let me tell you why I do love him. And he goes through it. What is it about Lewis that crosses theological categories in such a way that people they all give caveats on why he's wrong on something, right. but nevertheless, they still, they still read, they still love him. I mean, you have not only the Protestants, you not have Catholics, but I, and if I remember correctly, and I've heard conflicting things on this, I don't know if the Orthodox received him or not. I've heard some say they love him and I've heard others say they don't like him. Uh, so I, I'm not as familiar with that, but what is it about this enduring legacy that enables so many different Christians to excuse some of his poor theology, but right. still embrace him? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is, is a great question. And, and uh, for me, more or less a conservative, Presbyterian, Calvinist, evangelical, I found those, those articles in the Westminster Theological Journey the most interesting because... Um, they did exactly what, what you said. So uh, they, they reversed the order, but uh, these articles began with huge enthusiasm for, for <laughs> and then, But then they pause and say, well, you know, what he says about innate human capacity around the world just, just doesn't work. And I, actually, I, I'm probably on the fence on that myself, but, but it, it, was, it was really good to see serious theological engagement from people who obviously loved <laughs> well why well what one uh, with, with one exception and we maybe we can get around to that because it's an interesting exception but with one exception and and probably maybe close to 200 uh articles and reviews that maggie found and i i i added a, a few of them Everyone says he's a, he writes like an angel. Hmm. So the literary skill. Okay. And then just fun creativity. So, so, so you know, uh, I think Paul Woolley, who wrote uh, this pre one of the long appreciative articles in the Westminster Journal, said, well, 
Lewis, great, great, great. But, but you know, uh, just a few of his metaphors, just a few, don't, don't connect. And he, he did not like the one where Lewis said, well, nobody pays to go to a, a, a theater and watch somebody eat, eat a, a piece of meat and then talk about it and play with it and then eat a little bit, as opposed to you go to see a stripped tea show. Yeah. Uh, Willie said, that, that doesn't work. But, but he said that doesn't work by way of complimenting how much the other metaphors work. And then maybe the most important thing. It's known that Lewis in Mere Christianity intentionally set out to present Christian faith that almost all of the Christian world could accept. Mm -hmm. A wonderful book by George Marsden, a biography of Mere Christianity, with with just I mean, it's, it's not a long book, but there's an ocean of evidence to see how many different people from so many walks of life, so many places around the world have appreciated the argument of mere Christianity, that there is a basic core of traditional Christian teaching, that if you're a uh, high church Anglican, if you're a Pentecostal, if you're a Mennonite, if, if you're anything, if you're a free church Baptist, a Bible Baptist person. You can accept. And, and uh, to me, one of the most moving things that uh, is in your Christianity, maybe maybe this elsewhere, as well, Lewis makes the comment, and he, he would have put it much better, and I'm going to paraphrase it. But the closer the people get to Jesus Christ, the more they see how much they're like the others who are getting close to Christ. So it's not just mm. a, a boiled down simplified Christian faith that's mere Christianity, but it's a it's it's a condensed view of the heart of Christian faith with a focus on Jesus Christ. And I think that that focus combined with extraordinary, maybe even unique literary ability made it possible for um, Lewis to appeal to, to so many people. I have I used another quotation in my book, which let's see if I've got it here from uh, J.I. Packer, written after Lewis died. Let's see, maybe I don't have it here. And anyways, it, it was the, the point was to say that Lewis was not a not an Aaronist on his view of the Bible, high church Anglican. He was he was a, a person who had a, a very high view of the sacraments. J.I. Packer, real strong in Aaronist. Not a, a, a modern view in the sacraments, and yet, and yet, uh, Packer was just uh, filled with uh, admiration for the way in which, and, and again, this is a paraphrase, Packer would have put it much better. All of Lewis's imaginative work are rooted in Orthodox Christian strength. All of Lewis's Orthodox Christian writings have a unique imaginative flair. So he, he like John Piper, was someone who would have objected to quite a few elements of, of Lewis's teaching, but being aware that there was a there was a drive and dynamism of life in the presentation of basic Christianity that was appealing and could be appealing across across many many barriers. I was chatting with Malcolm Geit, and he was talking about the imagination, and really the imagination is kind of the back door that bypasses some of our normal mental defenses, if you will. Is it that he really knew how to draw your imagination in such a way to bring you close to God 
I mean, he really does seem to do that by tapping into these different expressions. I think of the great divorce and he's on this bus and seeing this beautiful woman and you realize, you know, she was a saint in this world. I mean, in our world, she wasn't anything to go by, but the real nature is being revealed. He just draws on the imagination in ways that very few know what to do. And it, I think it's a good reminder for us who aren't very, I mean, we're Protestant, we're very word centered, but he, he seems to cross those boundaries. I, I remember reading a book on the difference between Roman Catholic filmmakers and Protestant filmmakers. And Roman Catholic filmmakers used a lot of symbolism, a lot of color, imagery, music. And they said, and it's no secret why, because of course, in the, in, in the sacraments, of course, at the Lord's Supper or the mass, the, the, the body and blood are, are, are changed in, in Roman Catholic theology. There's this massive symbolism that's there within Protestant, we're very word centered. He seems to cross those genres so well. That's why he peaks the the imagination of Roman Catholics because he hits the imagery, the symbolic, but yet he's enough word centered that he brings in many of the Protestants. Would you say that his drawing upon the imagination is one of the reasons why so many people are drawn to him? Certainly. Uh, yeah. And I think uh, Malcolm Geitz uh, exposition of that point's a really good one. That uh, Recently Karen uh, Swallow Pryor has published mm -hmm. a, a good book on the kind of uh, the poverty of evangelical imagination. Uh, Right, the great divorce is a, a terrific example. You, you uh, and it, it's it was fun to read the different uh, reviews of the great divorce, because again, like we've been talking about, usually the reviewer would say, "Well, this this character doesn't work." Uh, what Lewis said about so and so, I think uh, I'll refer to a review by W. H. Auden. You think about mm -hmm. well, Auden, really sophisticated. Auden loved the book. But he said, why, why did Lewis have to introduce the, the historical figure Napoleon? And, and why, why, did, why did Lewis demean the animal world by uh, 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 describing lust as an insect? <laughs> 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 but, 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 this is, but you should read this book. So, I mean, Auden is, is saying exactly what, what you've said. It's the, the, the verb to have. Uh, but like the figure you mentioned, the, the woman who is of no account in this world now now appears as a as a figure of, of inestimable beauty. Uh, this is a great. I mean, you know, there, that's one of the great lines, isn't it? From the weight of glory is mm. I said the the, the the humble person sitting beside you uh, has has a glory unlike anything possible in this world. And you think, well. I, I never would have thought of that myself, but 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 it's true. So uh, right from the, the beginning, I mean, uh, there wasn't too much attention paid to the Pilgrim's Regress, the first of Lewis's books, although it was it was reviewed. Actually, there's a positive review by one of the conservative Presbyterians, although he thought Lewis was a Catholic, and from from. Uh, uh, so Lewis actually wrote him and set him straight, but but that, the the ability to have the imagination and enliven and embody mere Christianity that combination was really powerful. Why do you think? I mean, it is extremely powerful. Why do you think that he's so enduring to this moment? I mean, you're capturing him at the beginning of his genesis. I mean, just the, the dawn of his exposure in the American mind. I, I'm curious on two things. One, what did the Brits say about him initially? I'm sure you probably uncovered some of that in your discussion. And number two, 
and this is a bit more of a distant question. Why has he endured so much, even to this modern era of post-modernity? He still speaks. The British question is really nicely answered by the book by Stephanie Derrick, uh, which came out of a, a doctoral dissertation done under David Bebbington at Stirling University in, in Scotland. Books, her book has been published by Oxford University Press. And she, she reports that uh, compared to American enthusiasm, there is less enthusiasm in, in uh, Britain. Part of it had to do with uh, envy and antagonism by Lewis's academic peers. Uh, they, their their high-minded uh, objection was that he was spending so much time writing these fantasies and going around and giving talks and he wasn't doing a serious literary scholarship. Their low-minded uh, reason was he was popular and making money on books and their books were not selling at all or they weren't even getting <laughs> written. High-minded and, and a, 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 a low-minded. And then uh, I think... Uh, Derek suggests that the British public had never been divided in the way that the American public was. So, so that uh, uh, the, the Protestant world was not divided into a evangelical or fundamentalist and non-fundamentalist. And so Lewis always had strong supporters. I mean, Malcolm Geitz, a terrific one, the bits of very positive really profound Lewis scholarship coming out of uh, uh, Ward, uh, forgetting his first name, but Michael Ward, really, really, really sound. But uh, it, it, you don't have the enthusiasm of the United States, in part, I think, because of things you've mentioned. Uh, Lewis's ability in presenting mere Christianity was novel in the U.S. Um, uh, the real strength of the Christian faith in American history has been Individual Christian groups doing their thing for their people. Methodism was a tremendously positive force in the early United States, but it was not, uh, Methodism was for all, but it was really for the people who became Methodists. Catholics had a, mm -hmm. built up a very strong infrastructure. Joel Carpenter has shown how the fundamentalists mm -hmm. built a real strong infrastructure, but none of these, uh, the, the new, the the Carl Henry uh, uh, era in, in, in evangelical history built a real strong network of evangelicals, but but few of these movements had somebody out of their own narrow confines speaking speaking to a wider group. To the question of why Lewis endures, uh, that I, I think that that actually needs more research. Um, if you look at the Amazon.com bestseller list, Mere Christianity ranks real high, but I'm not sure it ranks as high as the Narnia tales, uh, which, which if, if that's the case, it would indicate that the imaginative works, Blue Tape, Great Divorce, Narnia, Space Trilogy, Ransom Trilogy, they continue on with one group of readers. The Mere Christianity, which we know is important, Charles Coulson, Francis Collins, um, referred to often by Tim Keller. Uh, the mere Christianity approach, to me, still works powerfully with people who, who uh, have retained older notions about the stability of truth, about the possibility of knowing uh, something really important outside of your own self coming into yourself. In other words, it, it's it's modern and not postmodern. I'm not 
I don't know. This is a question for people who've studied the contemporary. How well does Lewis fare with people who are willing to concede? Yes, every judgment comes from a point of view. That point of view will dominate the judgment. Uh, there are a few Christian uh, authors who have who've taken this direction and, and worked with it powerfully. It tends to be non-Christians who, who, are, who, who use it. I don't know how well Lewis's appeal to universal objective reasoning fares in a world, a postmodern world, where objectivity is supposedly a power game where the haves impose their will on the have-nots. The imaginative works, however, there's no question. They endure, and I think for some of the reasons we've been talking about, it's, it's not as though Lewis is bypassing reason, bypassing words, but he's using words to create images and pictures that are able to sway the imagination and, and his adept way of organizing things. He swayed the imagination toward understanding and accepting the Christian message. Why were Protestants so late? I don't want to say late to the game or reluctant. I mean, I mean it seems like they're trailing Roman Catholics in their embrace of Lewis. Why is that? Well, the, the fuller picture is that what we would consider today mainline Protestants mostly really like Lewis and, and early on. Uh, there, are, there are a few exceptions. Uh, the Christian century, which was probably not as pluralistic in its in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, has become. I mean, today the Christian century will have strongly evangelical, strongly postmodern, a lot, a lot in between. Uh, Charles Morrison, who was the was the editor, saw himself as speaking for the mainstream, sophisticated Protestants, and and you, the, the, there are some tepid reviews and, and one really interesting article written by a. An Episcopal minister who goes to visit C.S. Lewis, and he's not impressed. He says, "You know, C.S. Lewis. I mentioned Soren Kierkegaard, and Lewis said, I, I don't know anything about Kierkegaard.'" The minister said, "I, I, I told him how important uh, modern existentialism was in my life," and, and Lewis said, I, "I don't understand existentialism." So this article goes on and on, and then you, but then you find out why is this Episcopal minister from Pennsylvania, Philadelphia? Visiting C.S. Lewis, because one of his parishioners has become very excited about C.S. Lewis and recommending who's the parishioner, W.H. Auden. Mm. So here, here in an article that really is trying to poo-poo Lewis, you you find out that the reason the person is taking time to talk to C.S. Lewis is because one of the the crucial literary figures of the mid-20th century is excited about Lewis. <laughs> Mostly, however, the mainstream Protestants like Lewis. So there's articles in the Presbyterian journals, Lutheran journals, Episcopal journals, Southern Baptist journals, all saying Lewis is, is good. Unlike the Catholics, they don't understand, or they're not able to articulate how Lewis's technical scholarship on Spencer Medieval romance, Milton, relates to the C.S. Lewis of the Screwtape Letters, The Great Divorce, That Hideous Strength. So they're, they're, they're positive, but not positively the Catholics are. So in the evangelical world, 
I think this has been well documented by people like I mentioned Joel Marsden, uh, Joel, Joel Carpenter, George Marsden. The, the, the fundamentalists and conservative evangelicals had, had turned their back on what they saw as the contaminations coming out of the university world. So you, you have the foundation of, of, of an alternative intellectual world. There's, there's some decent work, some, some good work, but there's not a grounding in uh, an understanding for why might Milton in Paradise Lost have something to say about the, the, the present? Why might it even more remote? Why might the, the tradition of romance in the Middle Ages culminating in Spencer's Fairy Queen have anything to do with how Satan can work through us and demons like Lewis portrayed in, in the C.S. Lewis? And, and there just wasn't any almost no evangelical capacity to see how those things uh, came together. And then I, th I do think there, there was damage done in the fundamentalist conservative evangelical world by the fights over dogma. And, and so you, 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 uh, you have a, a situation where if, if someone is perceived as being weak on the doctrine of the inerrancy of the Bible, then you, you write them off. Well, Lewis was weak on the doctrine of the inerrancy of the Bible. It was hard to write him off. So, so, so it, it took a while. And then there were a few lifestyle matters. I remember the story, and I think it's documented. It comes a little bit later, but uh, Bob Jones Jr., I think the second, would it be the second, visited C.S. Lewis, hmm. came back and, and wrote, and he said, that man drinks. That man smokes, but I do believe he is a Christian. <laughs> you, you, had, you had a world where, and this is kind of a harsh judgment, but you had a world where secondary matters of lifestyle and secondary matters of Christian teaching had become primary matters. So it made it hard to evaluate fairly a project like C.S. Lewis that was presenting a mere Christianity and uh, a, a mere Christianity that, I mean, Lewis wasn't maneuvering, but a mere Christianity that would appeal to people across, across the uh, ecclesiastical spectrum. I remember reading a manuscript of, or a recording. There's a recording of Lewis and it might've been a McGrath's biography. Uh, I, I can't remember, but he tells the story. There, there, there is a group of them that are there and I think it's at Oxford and he's pouring a drink and they said, should we have this in the recording? And he's like, most definitely, <laughs> most definitely, uh, because I think he did want to challenge some of those, right. those, those principles that people had that kept them from the, the true apart. I mean, just the, the robustness of the Christian faith. And I think many don't realize about him. I mean, he really was a man of prayer. He was a man of prayer. He was a very, he was a pious man. He he talks about, we, we hear about him or talking about him going to church and attending services and, and him getting so frustrated because he couldn't tell what the priest was doing. And he's up to something all over again and he's messing everything up. What, what do you think Lewis would say? And I know you're a historian, you look to the past, but look to the future for a moment or a contemporary situation and knowing what you know, what do you think Lewis would be saying to American evangelicals in this cultural moment? 
Well, uh, th- yeah, that, that is a really good question. And as, as you intimated, uh, it's hard for historians to shift gears and think that way. Uh, but there are, I think, though, a number of things that just are, are re- really obvious. One of them is just that's just what you said. Lewis uh, irritated people because he was uh, irritated some people because he was so adept, so skillful at what he did, and, and yet he just kept doing it. So, I mean, he didn't... He, C.S. Lewis was never about C.S. Lewis. I, I actually end the book with uh, uh, a, a short effort to say, well, well what, what um, characterized Lewis that maybe could be useful for instruction today? And I, I point out things that he, before he became a public Christian apologist, he was a deeply learned person. So I thought, well, you know, if you want to be, have some credibility in, in, the, in what you write properly, do your homework. Uh, make sure that you've got a, a base of expertise, and, and of course he was—he was immensely creative and, and a terrific writer. And you, you can aspire, aspire to those things. You not, not always reach it. But then, back to your your the initial part of this this question, Lewis recognized how seriously uh, any kind of status or fame or celebrity could endanger the person who was in the focus. And so in, in, uh, it's in this period, I think it's 1946, maybe in 1947, he writes to his uh, 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 nun with whom he has had spiritual, who's in effect his, his spiritual tutor, and he, he writes the, the wonderful poem about the danger to the apologist. When people cheer the apologist, when people are uh, excited about the speaker, then that that brings tremendous uh, danger to the to the life of the apologist. Try to get yes, here it is. And it's it's a prayer from all my lame defects and oh much more from all the victories I have seen to score from cleverness shot forth in thy behalf, at which while angels weep, the audience laugh from all my proofs of thy divinity. Thou who wouldst give no sign, deliver me. So one of the things that W.H. Auden liked about uh, the great divorce was the identification of pride as the basic temptation for anyone doing something positive in the Christian faith. Now, Auden wanted to, to, to tweak. He said, now Lewis's understanding of pride needs to be adjusted in this. <laughs> so it was a good, good, but he's, it's, it, in effect, said, Lewis is exactly right. Thinking of yourself as the key to what you are doing is, is the fatal mistake of those who want to be spokesmen for Jesus, spokespeople for, for Jesus. And I think Lewis internalized that the Pilgrim's Regress, which is this extended analogy early in his life, which is still fairly difficult to read. It was a wonderful mm. annotated edition uh, now that David Downing has uh, uh, published. Uh, but but the, the, the constant threat of projection of the self as, as really significant in the communication of the Christian faith is, 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 a, is, is prominent. So I think you're exactly right. Uh, one of the reasons that Lewis continues to be 
respected as well as read is because his, his wife did not contradict what he, what he said. And we have just so many examples where that's not the case. And then uh, uh, enough positive examples. We know people have made, and I think the, the, the recent uh, memorials for, for Tim Keller have, have, have at least pointed out for people who knew him that Tim Keller was not about Tim Keller. Mm. Uh, what, what, what he was, he was trying to do. So combination of learning, creativity, humility, uh, not unique. I think, I think there have been other, other people who, who have had the same, but, but very unusual, very, very unusual. Well, as someone who can put all of those different genres together, and I think it was Lewis who himself said, don't try to be, what do you say? Don't try to be original, just write truth. And in doing so, you'll become original. And I, I thought. Uh, one, of the, one of the many, many. Yes. Advice. So many different quotes. Out of all of the things you've read um, by Lewis, what is your favorite? Well, yeah, I, I, I was really impressed diving into some of this uh, literary scholarship that I hadn't looked at before. Uh, uh, my wife and I read the Narnia tale several times, many times, our kids, I, I, I like him. I would probably have to say it, uh, that uh, the, the academic book that Lewis worked on for probably 20 years never ceases to provide real insight. It's the Oxford history of the English literature in the 16th century, except drama. <laughs> <laughs> it came out in the mid fifties. Uh, it, it was the book that uh, some of Lewis's friends and colleagues said, "Look, this is your job. You got to finish this book. I mean, why are you always running around doing these other things?" And he would say, "You're right, but I." But he kept at it, and uh, just a wonderful, wonderfully insightful writing on, for example, William Tyndale and Thomas More. Whom Lewis hmm. values both as among the great writers, but you can tell also he means the great Christians of the early 16th century. And then, however, he goes into the thousands of pages, vitriolic pages, that Moore wrote about Tyndale and the dismissive way, but on, on a much shorter compass, the, the dismissive way that Tyndale responded to Moore. So you, you see, in a sense, you see Lewis's appreciation and advocacy of mere Christianity at work in how he puts together this literary history. Great admiration for two people for different reasons. I mean, he, he's very good in the technical reason why, why Moore is important, why Tyndale is important. But, but also real appreciation for the fact that although they were antagonists, there were things in each of them that could be greatly admired in this kind of literary history. And of course, it's written with it's the same kind of verb. And I, I suppose probably I've enjoyed some of the more popular works even more, but I, you know, it's my, a more appropriate, right? My, my pride, I have to say. <laughs> um, looking at Lewis, you quote at the beginning of the book, his, is it a speech or chapel message learning in wartime? And he I, talks, yeah, go ahead. But he talks about, I mean, war is going on at this moment, 
And he says that we can't, he goes, the biggest enemy is excitement. Can you elaborate on that? Because I think that is very appropriate to now with our headline filled, the sky is falling. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that are, are just beside themselves. Like Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And I'm like, well, yes, he is. But you did, for you to think this time is completely unique historically, I think is missing a little bit of, you need some more historical um, softening, if you will. And I think Lewis's words are very appropriate to now. What is that message that he gave? And what did he say in that as war was swirling around them? I will, I'll come back to that, but just with a slight detail. Sure. You ask, uh, why, why are Lewis's works still enduringly popular? One of the reasons was that, that this will be a slight exaggeration, you can find almost no political viewpoints in the work. Now, uh, some people have said they're there and they prob- probably are there. But um, Lewis is writing during World War II. He's writing, he, he first comes to American attention d- during the Depression. There's nothing about whether the New Deal is good or bad. There's nothing about whether Britain's response to the Depression is good or bad. There's almost nothing about uh, the World War. And you think, how is that possible? And we come to the sermon, Learning and Wartime. And it might actually be Walter Hansen who introduces the book, who quotes from that, but it's, it's, it's apropos in any case. I think what Lewis is trying to say is, of course, world events are important. But most of us, most of the time, are called to tasks that are within our own capacity. And in a sermon at the University of Oxford, even though the student body at the University of Oxford is being thinned out, women are able to have a much greater role because the men are, many, most, many of the men, most of the men are, are being uh, uh, drafted, being in, into the, the armed forces. If you're here and you're called to take up an academic life, your responsibility right now is your responsibility right now. And that, that, that message, just, just as, as you indicate uh, very well, just could not be more pertinent. Uh, the capacity to watch the news, get the news on your, your internet feed, and think, oh, the world, the world, the world. Uh, it's, not, it's not irrelevant. But, but almost none of us, almost all of the time, can do very little to affect the world. Mm-hmm. All of us, almost all the time, can do those things that affect the immediate environment where we, where we live. That's probably the most difficult part. Yeah. It's, it's, in an age of, 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 of swirling uh, media expansion. And it's, it's that it's the era of outrage where we're attracted to the headlines. We go into enemy mode and we are constantly anxious and stressed. So to have a person in the midst of war, the, in the depression, as you've alluded to there helps us to, I think, appreciate him even more simply because he's not caught in the winds of change not caught up in them. He's familiar, but is so rooted to help us find our mind and a, uh, maybe a, a, a harbor, and if you will, in the midst of the storm. What are some concluding thoughts on Lewis for our audience today that something that they should read or perhaps digest to really gain a greater appreciation for Lewis 
in their their life at this moment. Well, I think I make mean, only I think recommend, but uh, recommended before I mean, uh, the Mere Christianity book, which does pull together slightly revised the, the radio talks from the early nineteen forties. Uh, is is a very effective um, approach aimed at general audiences uh, for the, the the reasonableness, but then even more the truth of Christian faith. The Narnia tales, uh, I, I I do think, show a little bit of the, the kind of um, good old boy networks of the twenties and thirties, but but are uh, wonderful in their uh, imaginative presentation of important uh, Christian teaching. People who uh, are, are into the literary world and, and uh, recognize the importance of older scholarship, I think, can still benefit from the allegory of love and the preface to Paradise Lost. Uh, Screwtape Letters makes a wonderful uh, book for uh, group discussions, which uh, we've been privileged to take part in a, a couple of different times. Um, some literary people like uh, the, the, the knowledge, the, the novel that came late is not connect, not not uh, 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 till we have faces. I've had trouble getting through that myself a couple of different times, but but uh, uh, people who like it really like it and think it was a very important statement of the later Lewis. The two books that Lewis wrote on um, uh, uh, grief uh, and, and pain. Let's see, uh, grief observed. Grief observed. Really. Uh, really, really important to, to uh, recognize that. And the problem of pain, that's the other problem one. Problem of pain, right? The, the, the yeah. times of stress, uh, there's nothing at all unchristian in, a, in experiencing the full range of human emotion at loss or turmoil. Mm. Uh, Lewis end, ended, however, I think, not, not by uh, uh, leaving people. And, and just experiencing loss and, and grief, but realizing that this is part of the the, uh, the human story that you know from other things he wrote fits into a mere Christianity in which the central event is the suffering of the Son of God. So mm. I'm probably putting a little bit evangelical spin on, on, on Lewis, but but uh, it's it's, uh, it, it's it's really hard. Or whatever your interests are, not to find something in the Lewis corpus that will actually make you think and in many cases help you be encouraged. There are so many books that of Lewis that I've enjoyed. And there's some that I'm like, eh, I didn't, I didn't like that. I mean, Pilgrim's Regress, there's so much going on at the thought of the time. It's 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 tough to wade through. Same with Till We Have Faces, but of course, Narnia being children's screw tape letters, which I know that was one of the most difficult for him to write simply because he's getting into the mind of the devil. But Mere Christianity has benefited so many and to know he's endured across streams of Christianity, the branches of Christianity is, is tremendously encouraging. And especially for us, as we're talking about a missionary encounter and one of the things that we're advocating for in a missionary encounter is this idea of mere Christianity in order to engage people where they are. We have to come with this mere Christianity, not that we, we jettison our doctrine, but it becomes uh, I don't want to say a means to an end, but it can become a obstacle if it is so rooted in a historical moment where that expression was made. You know, I think to the backdrop of the Reformation as they're talking about what's going on with Roman Catholicism, and we've addressed this on the show, 
that there are so many different issues today. It's not necessarily Roman Catholicism. That's not the backdrop. It's how do I talk and articulate the solas in a self-centered and narcissistic culture and a self-help culture? How do, how do we do that? It's Christ alone. And Lewis is, is such a good and welcome breath of fresh air, that spring breeze that comes in. And to be able to see how he has been viewed over time, to see how he was understood right when he came out. It's, I mean, everyone's kind of scrambling to say, is he good? Is he bad? What do we say? How do we say it? Well, he's bad, but he's good. <laughs> and that seems to be across the board. But I, I want to say thoroughly how much I've enjoyed the conversation today to enjoy your insight again. I want to thank you, Mark, for coming on Apollo's Watered. Uh, thank you for uh, trying to do what you're trying to do. Mark Knoll is definitely a historian, and that's what I love about him. He gives us the details and the stories that really put flesh on how people understood Lewis and why they loved him then and why we love him now. I would encourage you to check out the book. And if you don't get anything else from this conversation except this it will be worth it. Here's what I want you to do. If you don't get Noel's book, that's fine. But pick up Lewis, whether it's the Chronicles of Narnia, like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the Magician's Nephew, do it. Pick up the sci-fi trilogy, read Paralandra, or read Mere Christianity, or the Screwtape Letters, which is on spiritual warfare, or Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. All of these are excellent books. You need to find out which book of Lewis really speaks to you. Because Lewis was a prophet for our own time. He leads us into mere Christianity. And we need that, especially in a moment in time when people are increasingly intolerant of the Christian faith. We want to make sure that we do not put any unnecessary obstacles in the way keeping them from Jesus. That's why we need to advocate for a mere Christianity so that they too might see and know who Jesus is. I want to thank you for listening in today and really go online to Amazon and pick out the Lewis book that you want to read. I also would encourage you that if you'd like us to come to your organization or church, go to apolloswater.org, click our resources tab, and then check out our watering weekend. We would love to be able to come to your church or organization to help equip you in your missionary encounter with Western culture. I want to thank you for listening today, and I also want to thank our Apollos Water team for helping us to water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on the roll.